if you're like me, that text that uh, Brian just read for us brings up kind of mixed feelings. Of course, I'm in awe of how amazing Jesus is and what an excellent example his life is for us. I hear about his prayer life and I'm inspired to improve on my own. I, I read about how he healed sick people and I'm emboldened to uh, do more mercy ministry in, in our community. But I, I want to always be honest with you guys uh, when I'm up here. And if I'm being honest, I also feel some shame. It, it's difficult for me to arise early and to spend time with the Lord. And, and I find that when I get away to a quiet place to pray, that I, I find that I can't stay focused, that my mind wanders. Sometimes I fall asleep. I also feel cynical. Of, of course, Jesus could heal the sick, but when I pray for someone, I, I don't always believe that God is going to do it. So many times I've prayed for others' healing and it didn't happen. And when it does happen, even then I'm tempted to attribute it to coincidence or to the, the work of uh, a physician. I think when I read passages like this, uh, for me, it's a deep reminder of just how far short I fall from the standard that Jesus has established. And so I take some comfort in the fact that this passage is what we would call a descriptive text. See, Mark is providing for us a description of a few days in the life and times of Jesus. And there really are no commands in this text for us to obey. And yet, these aren't just cute little Bible stories that we tell to our kids. They're, there's no denying the fact that the Christian journey involves uh, being conformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior. And so we can make observations from the life of Jesus, and then we need to contemplate how to follow his example in our own lives. And that's what I want to do together today. We'll look at three observations from this text, and then we will consider how to apply what we see to our own lives. And our big idea today is this, that Jesus' commitment to his mission provides a model for our ministry. Jesus' commitment to his mission provides a model for our ministry. And if you're a note taker, uh, here's our three observations. Uh, first, Jesus prioritized time spent with his heavenly father in prayer. Jesus prioritized discipleship even over the most exciting, popular, and in-demand aspects of his ministry and Jesus prioritized the gospel over, but he did not separate the gospel from his ministry of mercy for felt needs. So let's dive right in and look at Jesus prioritized time spent with his heavenly father in prayer. We see in verse 35 that he rose very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Now, we see this many times in Scripture, that, that Jesus had this practice of rising early and getting away from everyone and spending time in prayer. Though Jesus is God, in his humanity, he needed to make it a priority of being connected to the Father and the Spirit. 
I once attended a prayer seminar, and, and they were trying to inspire us to spend more time in prayer uh, by telling us this story. They said, Martin Luther spent the first two hours of every day in prayer, except for days when he had too much to do, and then he spent three hours in prayer. And you think, oh, what a prayer warrior Martin Luther must have been. I wish I could be more like Martin Luther. Well, when I was in seminary, we did a study of a woman named Catherine von Bora. Catherine was uh, a former nun who was a part of the new Protestant church. And she became Martin Luther's wife. And there's a telling story from their journey together. She was once so fed up with him, hiding away in his study and praying all the time, that she had the door removed so that he would come out and spend time with his family. So maybe Martin Luther's prayer life is not exactly the best example for us to follow. You see, if we're not careful, when we observe the life of Jesus, we can wind up creating some false standards for ourselves that he does not intend. Jesus often retreated to desolate places, but that doesn't mean that we now have an obligation every morning to rise up and drive out of town and go pray. He got up very early, before dawn to pray. That doesn't mean that he expects us to pray at that time. See, Jesus was dealing with some very specific pressures of his fame. And when he was with the crowds, he wanted to be fully engaged with them. And so in order to pray well, he needed to get away. That was his circumstance. When Jesus teaches about prayer, he, he does not tell us when or where or how long we should pray. He implies that we should pray daily. He says that we, when we pray, we should not be too wordy. And he says that we should pray to the Father and in his name. He gives us very specific teaching on prayer. Friends, do not make prayer such a burden that you're dissuaded from doing it. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, give thanks. This is not a description of kind of dull, boring, monotonous, burdensome prayer. He's saying weave prayer throughout your day. Don't get caught up in the form and format. You, you, did you guys know you can pray with your eyes open? You don't have to bow your head. You don't have to kneel. You don't have to speak aloud. You don't have to quote scriptures. These are all great things to do during your time of prayer, and they can be helpful uh, in helping us stay focused and, and on task. But I think that they're also sometimes artificial barriers that we erect and then we think we cannot possibly fit prayer into our schedules. Now, I can certainly make an argument for praying first thing in the morning. I find starting my day with prayer to be a very good thing. It keeps me centered and, and sets my day off on a good foot. But then I also, I really highly recommend praying at the end of the day after you reflect on all that God has done and consider all of the things that you have struggled with or overcome. And then I think like it can be really invigorating to just 
like pray at lunch, like in the middle of the day. Jesus doesn't care when you pray. He cares that you pray. And what he modeled for us was consistency despite circumstances. That's what we're going for. So maybe you're asking yourself, why though? Why why does Jesus want us to pray? And why did Jesus have to pray? Isn't he God? Couldn't he just like talk to himself? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Jesus' prayer was not pantomime, right? He was not faking it. He wasn't pretending for the sake of those watching. And neither was it merely just an act of obedience. Jesus took prayer very seriously as if he desperately needed it. And he wasn't pretending. Remember when Jesus was praying near the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying so fervently that he begins sweating blood. You see, this is part of that mystery that Patrick preached about a few weeks ago, that that Jesus is fully God. And in his divinity, he needs nothing, right? He's got everything that he needs. But then he's also fully human. And in his humanity, he has a desperate need for the power that only comes through spending time with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like all humans, he could not afford to miss out on the blessings simply because he didn't ask for them. Jesus was on a mission, and he he knew that if he wanted to succeed, he could not do it without the Father and the Holy Spirit, and he needed to pray. This is one of the ways that we experience unity with Christ. Jesus was essentially in the exact same spot that we are, We are connected to God through what we call the means of grace, one of which is prayer. But because we believe that God is sovereign, and we sometimes get hung up on this question, we say, why should I pray? God is in control over everything, and I know that he's working all things for the good of those who believe and are called according to his purpose. It's all going to work out okay whether or not I pray. Well, Jesus could say the same thing. Why should I pray? I'm God anyway. I'm pretty sure it's all going to work out okay for me. But the answer is the same for both of us. We pray, and Jesus prayed, because humans need prayer. Prayer is not a burden that is placed upon us. It is a gift from God, wherein he meets us. And when he meets with us, He's meeting a deep, real, and desperate need to be aligned with him. And it's through prayer that we appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we neglect our prayers, we're neglecting the very nourishment of our soul. So how are you allowing your circumstances to cause you to neglect your prayer life? What needs to change in order for you to make prayer a priority? I think some of us are going to need to make adjustments to our routines. Maybe we do need to get up a little bit earlier or go to bed a little later or take breaks during the day. Some of us may need to evaluate our priorities. We never seem to have time to pray, right? But we have time to binge a Netflix. We have time to 
to listen to an entire podcast in one sitting. I'm preaching to myself right now, guys. (laughs) Some of us may need to change how we think about prayer. Stop putting pressure on ourselves to make every prayer time such a big deal. It doesn't have to be complicated. Maybe we need to embrace new kinds of prayer. Pray while you go for a walk or pray while you're driving. Remember, you can keep your eyes open. (laughs) Here's something I learned a few years ago that has been really helpful to me with prayer. You can pray by writing it down. You can write out your prayers in a journal, and that is prayer. Here's my challenge to you today. Find somebody that you trust and tell them the thing you can do to be more consistent with your prayer time and ask them to hold you accountable. Our next observation is that Jesus prioritized discipleship even over the most exciting, popular, and in-demand aspects of his ministry. In verse 38, uh, he said to them, let us go. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So here's the scene. Jesus spent all day yesterday at Peter's house casting out demons and healing people. And it seems that the next day, everyone is back for more. So I can imagine that Peter wakes up, right? He probably wakes up to the sound of roosters crowing. And he's probably like, why does that seem so ominous? (laughs) If you know, you know, right? Like, okay. (laughs) He sees people beginning to gather at his house, and then he realizes Jesus isn't here. Where is he? Maybe he begins to panic a little bit. People are going to be upset. This could really hurt this ministry. And whatever Jesus is up to, it can't possibly be as important as helping all of these needy people. And Peter, maybe he's thinking, man, if we really mess this up, I'm going to have to go back to being a fisherman. And so he grabs Andrew and John and maybe some others, and they start searching for him. And I bet they looked all over town. Where is he? And then finally they find him outside of town, and apparently he's lost track of time while praying. And they're like, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. As if they are saying, Jesus, why aren't you where you're supposed to be? And I love Jesus' response to them because he just seems completely unconcerned with the fact that apparently a whole bunch of people are waiting for him back at the house. In fact, he's like, hey, I'm not even going back to your house. You see, Jesus didn't come to become a famous healer, and he didn't come to become a famous exorcist. He had a very particular mission, and after spending all morning in prayer, he's certain where the Father wants him to be. And so I imagine that he puts his arms over their shoulders, and he's like, come on, guys, forget about the crowds. We're going on a road trip. We need to be about spreading the good news all throughout Galilee. He says, let us go. Let us go together. And this is the thing I want you to pay attention to. You see, Jesus could have got up early, 
and said a quick prayer and headed off across Galilee preaching, right? But it wasn't time for him to go yet. It wasn't time until his new disciples were there with him. And I think this tells us something about what he meant when he said, that is why I came out. When we talk about the work of Jesus, theologians will we'll say uh, he has active and passive o- obedience. His active obedience was his perfect sinless life. And his passive obedience was his submission to death on a cross. See, it's his perfect righteousness that is imputed to us through his death that was on our behalf. And in a very real sense, this is the essence of what Jesus came to accomplish. But I would posit that equal to this is his work of establishing the church, in which which he spent three years of his life discipling uh, men and women, and 12 of those men he named as apostles. And after all, his church is how the gospel message about the cross goes forth. The mission was not to heal a bunch of people. The mission was not to exercise a bunch of demons. The mission was not even solely to preach the gospel throughout Galilee. Those were all important elements of the mission, of the main mission, which was to make disciples. Let us go. That phrasing makes me think about the Great Commission. When Jesus' work is all done and he's about to ascend up into heaven, he gives his disciples, and to us as well, a synopsis of the mission. We're not done yet, guys. There's more to do. Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you. Let us go. I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' example to us is to make the main mission the priority. It's more important than the most in-demand aspects of whatever it is the crowds are clamoring for. Or rather, all the other aspects of ministry, the singing, the gathering, the, the preaching, the serving, the giving, whatever. All of those things are geared towards the main aspect, which is making disciples. And if we are not making disciples, then we are not on mission in Jesus' kingdom. If you feed a thousand people through a soup kitchen, but you don't make any disciples, you are not on mission. And if you give a million dollars to the poor, but you don't make any disciples, you are not on mission. And if you preach 52 sermons a year, but you don't make any disciples, you are not on mission And if you post 365 inspirational gospel-centered memes on Instagram, but you don't make any disciples, you are not on mission. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, then you have been commissioned by Matthew 28. 
And Jesus has given you your marching orders. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And there are no exceptions. We are all to take part in this venture. At New City, our mission is this. It's to make, mature, and multiply responsible disciple makers. This is what we're all about. We try to look at at every aspect of our ministry through the lens of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples who in turn will make disciples. This is why we don't have a ton of programs here. We try to funnel our ministry efforts through things like missional communities and discipleship groups. And we truly believe that for the Christian, all of life involves discipleship. Now, what I'm not saying is that everyone here, that every Christian is supposed to lead a D group. That's not what I'm saying. Some people are gifted that way and others are not. But whatever your gifting and whatever your current maturity level as a Christian, you're still called to be a disciple maker. And for some of us, this does mean stepping into leadership roles. But for some of us, maybe it means we're hosting a group or an event or Maybe it means we just attend a D group and we show up prepared and willing to be real and vulnerable with others. Maybe we're mentoring people one-on-one or maybe we're just committing to pray for someone or maybe we've made a commitment to support someone else financially. Some of us are new to the faith and we don't even know what we're doing yet. And And we're in a season where we just need to be discipled. But I think even in that stage, we can make sure we're thinking with this idea in mind, I am being prepared to be a disciple maker. Scripture tells us to do this all together as a church, as one body. So how are you embracing your calling as a disciple maker? What is it that's holding you back? Well, here's my second challenge to you today, ask yourself this question. Do you think of yourself as a disciple maker? And what would you need to do to more fully embrace the great commission in your own life? Again, I say, find someone that you trust and share your thoughts about this. Lastly, we see that Jesus prioritized the gospel over, but he did not separate the gospel from his ministry of mercy for felt needs. I think that the two stories in our text today about the the healing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic, these are such encouraging stories to me. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or some other kind of like healer, your your life is all about healing the sick. And it's it's so amazing to me how well you uh, image Christ. Jesus often healed people that he encountered in his travels, and he cared about the poor and the oppressed and the sick and the lame and the demon-possessed. He was such an effective healer that this aspect of his ministry was always threatening to overshadow everything else. This is why it was so important for Jesus to get away and pray and stay in alignment so he was on mission that the Father had sent him on. It seemed like everyone was pulling him in different directions, didn't it? In this passage, we see the disciples. They seem to think 
that his priority should be on the crowds and, and building his new ministry. The leper, right? The leper, he was told, don't tell anyone what I did for you. Go tell the priest, like follow the laws, but don't tell anyone what's happened to you. Now, I can imagine that was really asking a lot. You know, as a leper, right, he would have lived for years without any human contact. No one would have touched him. He would have been forced to live outside of town. His own family would have avoided him because he was unclean. And now all of a sudden he's clean. Like he can be around people again. He's able to get a job. He can hug his family and friends again. In verse 45, it tells us, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. That Greek word, uh, the Greek words that are translated as talk freely, uh, it's probably a better translation would be that he preached often. And spreading the news That term means that uh, he like published the news far and wide. He He was so starved for attention, that temptation to begin a dynamic preaching ministry must have been so strong, right? You can hardly blame him. And yet we're told that his disobedience complicated Jesus' mission. His calling to preach was not a true calling. We know that because Jesus told him not to do it. But before we judge him too harshly, we should consider that the cleansed leper was told not to tell anyone, and he told everyone. And yet we're told to tell everyone, and we tell next to no one. Whose sin is greater? The paralytic and his friends, uh, they they were really cool, right? But they knew what was best. They knew what Jesus needed to be doing in that moment. They obviously thought that his need to be uh, healing their friend was more important than whatever it was that Jesus was preaching about at that moment. Not to mention they thought it was more important than Peter's roof. And of course, the scribes, they believed that Jesus should be more concerned about following their kind of nonsensical uh, rules about blasphemy than anything else that they saw going on around them. But because Jesus was in perfect alignment with his father, it didn't matter how many people tried to manipulate him or pull him in wrong directions. He just kept moving forward with his mission, his mission to be making disciples. And yeah, the leper made things more difficult, but that didn't deter him. He moved his ministry further out. The paralytic, he wanted healing, but Jesus stayed focused. He was probably preaching about forgiveness of sins in that moment. He focused on what his real deepest need was, which was forgiveness. And so rather than getting annoyed at that interruption, Jesus saw the faith of his friends and, and him. I mean, did you ever think about this? Like, how did Jesus forgive this man's sin before he went to the cross? 
it was the same way that sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. Like Abraham, this man's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. But faith in what? What did he have faith in? Faith in the Messiah that would someday die for his sins. For Abraham, it was faith in a coming Messiah years later. But for the paralytic, it was a Messiah who was right in front of him, who would die for him in just a couple of years. For us, it's a Messiah who died many, many years ago. Church, there's only one way to the Father, through Jesus Christ. And that was true in Genesis 3, and it was true before Moses brought the sacrificial system in the law, and it was true while they were making sacrifices, and it's been true since the destruction of the temple. God is unchanging. We always come to the Father through Jesus. And while we're speaking about the Messiah, one thing that's really interesting in our passage is that this is the first time that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he'll do it again 13 more times in this book and I think something like 80 times throughout the New Testament. In verses 9 through 11, Jesus says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The term Son of Man appears a lot in the Old Testament, and most of the time, all it meant was human. God uses it uh, lots of times to refer to the prophet Ezekiel, just basically saying, you're a, you're a human, you're a Son of Man. Uh, but I found this great book. It's called um, The Christ of the Prophets. It's written by O. Palmer Robertson. And he writes about this term. Apparently, it's not a well-known, it was not a well-known term by the Jews of Jesus' day. It had no political connotations. There's no real evidence that they were using this term a lot. And thus, Jesus was able to kind of adopt this term for himself. And Jesus was the one who kind of defined what it meant throughout the course of his ministry. And as Jesus used it, the title Son of Man began to have two kind of prophetic connotations. First, he would use it to show that it had been prophesied that Jesus was going to suffer. And second, it meant that he had been prophesied that his suffering would lead him to a crown of glory. You see, if Jesus had shown up and, and just started out saying, hey, I'm the long foretold Messiah, the Jews would have had all kinds of preconceived notions about who Jesus was and what he was supposed to be doing. But by easing folks into this title, the Son of Man, he was able to kind of push all that off for a little while. At the very end of his ministry, he became a little more bold about what he meant. In Mark chapter 14, we'll probably preach about this later on, Jesus was pretty clear why he chose the title Son of Man. 
Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. You see, Jesus was making a direct reference to the book of Daniel here. In Daniel chapter 7, we see this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Why didn't Jesus just kick off his ministry saying, I'm the foretold Messiah? He could have really streamlined this process. He could have just got to the cross right away, forgiven all our sins, and been done with it. Well, I hope that that reason is maybe obvious by now. We found it takes about three years to make a disciple. And as we kind of wrap this up, let's recap what we've seen. We've seen an example of Jesus kind of walking away from from a crowd of needy people, people who are undoubtedly coming to him for more healing. And then we have an example of Jesus who he heals a man because he has compassion for him. It says that he had pity for him. And we have an example of Jesus healing a man because it proved that he had the authority to forgive sins. I think the thread that connects these three passages of Scripture is Jesus' unwavering commitment to his primary mission, to spread the good news of the gospel through his church by raising up disciples who make disciples. And church, as we stay committed to the Great Commission and and we follow Jesus' example, we will have so many opportunities to show compassion and mercy on people in need. I'm grateful to be part of a church who's committed to this, and I'm grateful for you that you're on this journey with us. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.